Well, uh, first of all, thank you for Doug for letting me teach, and uh, I love to teach. Uh, I don't know how many teachers are here. I think everybody's a teacher to some extent, but you know, I told Doug it's literally I'm walking in the in the parking lot, and I'm like, man, that was a tough study. And he sent me some notes on it, and I looked through that, and then I kind of got busy, stayed up late last night, and then started. I'm one of these guys. I have to write everything out, and then I have to translate that to my computer because I can't read my handwriting. Uh, and so uh, it was very, very tough. And uh, so I'm going to share a lot really from my heart as to what God was speaking to me here. So if you have your Bibles, by the way, I was sitting over here looking around the room and seeing all these Bibles open. I don't know that there's anything more encouraging than that. See men, a group of men this size that have the Word of God open. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And if you would, I'm going to have you stand as I read this passage. Beginning in verse 1, Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. May God bless the reading of his word. There are five discourses in Matthew's gospel. Uh, the first one is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. The second is the commissioning of the apostles in chapter 10. The third is the parables of the kingdom in chapter 13. And today we're going to look at the fourth discourse, which is the childlikeness of the believer. Of course, the fifth one is the Olivet Discourse, which is in chapters 24 and 25, which teach the second coming of Christ. We're going to look specifically, we're going to see that God values three things. Well, he, he values a lot more than three things, but he values the heart of a child. 
God protects the heart of a child. And God rescues the heart of a child. And the text begins with, you see that verse? You see what it says? The very first statement. At that time. You know, it's important when we read at that time that we understand what's going on. Doug just did a little preview of what's been happening. But think about what's been going on with the disciples and Jesus. There seems to be a lot revolving around Peter. Have you noticed that? Jesus referred just a few verses back to to Peter being the rock or a rock. Peter was with Jesus and the other two disciples on the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus had performed a miracle where he paid the the temple tax for he and Peter. You know, I I think about Peter, James, and John being asked by Jesus to go up on on the mountain. You know, I wonder what the other disciples were thinking while those three marched up the hill. You ever think about that? And not only that, what they experienced while they were there. Moses and Elijah. I mean, you know, Peter steps in there. I think it's good that we're here. (laughs) No kidding. It's good that we're here. So much so, he's ready to build a tent for them all. And not only that, a cloud comes down, bright as all get out, and out of the cloud, God speaks and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, what an experience. Can you imagine? So listen, have you guys ever been on a retreat, a men's retreat, where you went away and it was just awesome? You just came back and you were fired up. Maybe it's a dinner like tomorrow night. You go and you're so encouraged. Or, you know, I think of men's retreats, whether it's a SWAT retreat or some other retreat, Promise Keepers. How many of you guys did Promise Keepers back in the day? And you go away on those weekends and you were fired up. But what happens? At some point, you come off the mountain, right? We don't like coming off that mountain. (laughs) Peter, James, John, Jesus come off that mountain. And what do they experience? Chaos. We looked at last week. The the disciples have not been able to heal this epileptic. They come to Jesus and say, you know, Jesus casts out the demon. They come to Jesus privately and say, hey, what happened? Why were we not able to do what we've done before? And Jesus tells him, it's your faith. It's your little faith that you have. I'm wondering what Peter is thinking as he's sitting around going, I probably could have handled that one. (laughs) You you think about what's going on with these disciples. And there just seems to be a lot, a lot there. We know from the end of chapter 17 that Jesus and his disciples traveled from Galilee to Capernaum. In fact, Mark's gospel reads that Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? What were you discussing on the way? Luke records that at some point an argument started among the disciples. How many of you had a brother or two or three? Uh, How many of you have sons, multiple? I've got two sons. It's really interesting. How typically, do brothers ever maybe do this? Yeah. Little, little, uh, little battling? I had an older brother, two years older than me. And how do we usually settle arguments as boys, men? There you go. Man, my mom used to say, get outside. I don't care what you do outside, but don't do it in here. 
ooh, that was, that was trouble. My brother was bigger than me. Not long term, but short term. He, he pounded me a lot. He, we'd take it to the mat every single day. You know what? My brother and I are as close as two brothers could possibly be. But man, we, we, we wrestled a lot. These guys were probably not a whole lot different. You know, it, it's interesting that when you think about, I don't know, I tend to think of these disciples as these you know, mighty men of God, which they were. But the reality is there are times when you look at Scripture and you're reminded they're just normal guys. They're normal guys just like you and I with insecurities and, and struggles of their own. The other disciples were probably getting jealous they wanted to know what their position was. And so it reads that the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Listen, when my brother and I couldn't settle an argument with our fists, where did we go? Mom or dad. We went to our parents to settle that argument. That's what the disciples have done here. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Think about it. You got 12 grown men. There had to be some tension from the time from time to time, some some insecurity, some issues with pride or ego. And there's this jockeying for position, I think. And Jesus being the master of illustrations, he called a little child to him and put the child among them. And then he said this. I tell you the truth, Unless you turn from your sins and become like children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uses this child to show what the heart and attitude of his disciples should be. The life of a child is pretty simple. I've got two grandchildren. I was just talking to Amos here. I've got, I've got two grandsons. I've got another one that's actually my daughter was in the hospital this morning. But she's out. But we're expecting it any day. And when you look at a child, there's, there's really only about three things they do. They eat, they sleep, they poop. Not necessarily in that order. And, and they cry if they don't have one of those. Or if they do have one. They don't care what they look like. Because most of the time they're a mess. When he says little child, I think this little child that he's just put in front of them is probably about two years old. Now think about a two-year-old. If you've had them or you've seen them, you were one at one time, you really don't care what you look like. You know, you can blow bubbles out of your snot. It, it's pretty impressive, you know, a lot of times when you can watch that. They're not concerned with success or power. They are powerless. They're not worried about how to pay the bills. They are completely dependent. They're not concerned with social status because they don't have any. And Jesus says that we must become like children. And how do we do that? We recognize our weaknesses. We recognize our dependence. And we recognize our position. Now notice that the disciples are concerned with position in the kingdom. And Jesus is concerned with entrance in the kingdom. Jesus is saying that it's more important to know how you enter the kingdom than to know who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. 
And Jesus, I'm reminded of uh, Matthew chapter 7, that there are many who are jockeying for position in the kingdom who will never enter the kingdom. Let me just read that verse to you, Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, do, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Doug and I have talked about this. This may be the most sobering verse in all the Bible. Jesus is saying, hey, don't get caught up with your position in the kingdom. Let's, let's get concerned about entrance into the kingdom. Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, look at this. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, in the world, greatness is measured by status and a willingness to do whatever it takes to succeed. In God's kingdom, greatness is measured by humility and a willingness to seek the benefit of others. In God's kingdom, it's not about me, it's about others. In the world, in the world humility is often seen as cowardly or weak. And in God's kingdom, humility is elevated to the highest level. What is the opposite of humility? Pride. 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 How does God feel about pride? Mm. That's exactly the word. Proverbs 8, 13, All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption, perverse speech. Pride causes division. It leads to arrogance, and it keeps us from an intimate relationship with God. And while God hates pride, He loves humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. You can jot these down because I'm limited on time. But this is what it says. All of you serve each other in humility. For God opposes the proud but favors the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, He will lift you up in honor. You know, we're all striving for honor, position. And Peter's saying, humble yourself, and in the right time, God will lift you up. Humility recognizes that we are totally and utterly dependent upon God. Humility leads us closer to God. Humility causes us to see ourselves as God sees us. Humility brings us closer together as brothers in Christ. Humility puts God on the throne where He belongs, not ourselves. And humility helps us see what's really important. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul said this, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. <laughs> well, I could just stop right there. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. You know, humility helps us to see that God is more important than ourselves. Humility helps us to see others as more important than ourselves. And humility helps us to see that it is better to give than to receive, to serve than to be served, to love than to be loved, and to have joy than to be important. Proverbs 18, 12, humility comes before honor. Memorize that one. <clears throat> Proverbs 1. Proverbs 
Peter goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. I love this quote by Andrew Murray. He said, In man, humility is one thing needed to allow God's holiness to dwell in him and shine through him. The chief mark of counterfeit holiness is a lack of humility. The holiest will be the humblest. Charles Spurgeon said, Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. I think it's important that we, as we open God's Word, two things should happen. We should see God for who He is and us for who we are. And you will quickly see the chasm between us and God. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, you know this verse. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And I love this promise, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen, God desires a heart that models the humility of a childlike trust in Him. Right, what was that last verse? 11.29, Matthew 11.29. Let me say that again. God desires a heart that models the humility of a childlike trust. Not only does God value a heart, the heart of a child, He also protects the heart of a child. Look at verse 5. Jesus says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. You know, children are often regarded as unimportant and insignificant. Jesus says that whoever receives the insignificant or unimportant receives me. In fact, that word receives means to deliberately and readily take something or someone to oneself. It's a term for welcoming an honored guest and meeting their needs with special attention and kindness. When Doug and I, Doug, I was thinking of Dawa when we went to India. You know, just the greeting, just the preparation that he had to receive us. That's, the, that's what he's talking about, about receiving. Jesus' point here is that how we treat others is how we treat Christ. And Jesus further illustrates this idea that his protection when he says in verse 6, look at it, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's pretty harsh. The phrase, these little ones, refers to anyone who believes in Christ. That's what he's talking about. He says that anyone who intentionally causes anyone who believes in him to sin puts themselves in grave danger. Listen, are we capable of doing that? Are we capable of doing that? Yeah. It doesn't matter how much Bible you read. We are all capable of causing another brother or sister in Christ to sin. And I think I'm afraid at times we don't even realize how easy it could be. I mean, I don't know. I, I can get on Facebook, social media, any kind of thing like that. I can see how well you know, Dave's doing over here and I can become very jealous of what Dave has. They didn't intentionally do that. 
But I think the reality is that's what God is, that's what Jesus is calling us to be. He's calling us to be very, very alert, very sensitive to how we might cause a brother to sin. We certainly have a responsibility not to sin, but he's very serious about this. In fact, the cruelest legal punishment in Jesus' day was crucifixion. But this image of drowning represents a Roman punishment more horrifying to Jewish hearers than crucifixion. And it was, it was rarely tolerated. Drowning was not common. This is, by the way, this is not some small stone that you grind on your kitchen counter with a little thing and you, get to, you grind it up, you know. This is a millstone. I, I don't think I really grasped what this was till I actually went to Israel to see it. I mean, these things are massive. 3,000 pounds. Yeah, they're massive. 3,000 pounds. pounds. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a pretty good swimmer. I got no chance with that hanging around my neck. You get his point? This, this is a millstone that's pushed by an ox. You know, I think it's interesting. This is pretty radical stuff. If you just read it on the surface, it's pretty radical. Jesus says this punishment would be an act of mercy compared to what's in store for those who lead his little ones to sin. Jesus makes this proclamation even stronger by saying in verse 7, look at that, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. <clears throat> Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus tells us that these temptations are inevitable in a world that is controlled by Satan. Nonetheless, if we allow ourselves to be used by Satan to tempt his own, we will be held accountable. Jesus not only warns those who do the tempting, but he lays out action steps for those who give in to sin. Again, if that wasn't radical enough, look at verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Here's my question, maybe for us. To what extent are we willing to go to avoid falling into sin? There's not a single man in this room who doesn't struggle with a sin or sins. True? Amen. What extent, to what extent will you go to get rid of that? Are you willing to amputate? I mean, he's not talking about literally amputating. But what, what is the source of sin? I mean, I think of the guys that I meet with on a regular basis, Doug, a lot of them struggle with pornography. I get that. Do you understand how you're getting to that? What's the path that's leading down to that sin? Jerry, you could probably come up here and teach on that. That's right. There's a great book called The Way of Purity that I read years ago. I'll probably share it with you, Jerry. Three, three major points. In fact, I would make a note of this because it's not just in pornography. It's in sin in general. We must amputate sin. We must appropriate Christ. And to Jerry's point, you can pluck out that 
eye, you can amputate that arm. But most of us know we live in a time where images play over and over and over in our minds. If you've seen, if you've seen pornography one time, it would be interesting, Jerry, I think it brands your soul. You will remember it for a lifetime. I remember the first time I saw it. I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I still can see those images. But when he says appropriate Christ, that is appropriate the, the God of the Bible into your mind. How do you do that? Fox News? CNN? The Bible. Appropriate Christ in that place. You, you, you ever meet somebody who quits smoking only to go to the gym three hours a day? Okay, I'm not saying you know, that's not a good behavior, a good discipline. But the fact is he went from one addiction to another. We need to amputate sin. We need to get radical with it. And we need to appropriate Christ. Thirdly, we need accountability. Amputate, appropriate, and accountability. So what extent will you go to get rid of sin? Jesus is serious about this stuff. He goes on to say in verse 9, And if your eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Notice that the first section he talks about his hands and his feet. He's addressing the actions of the believer. The sins that we walk in and out of on a daily basis. And here he's talking about the eye which deals with the issues of desire and envy. Turning and becoming like a child requires not only changing the direction of our walk, but changing the focus of our eyes. What are you looking at? Ultimately, God desires a heart that recognizes the seriousness of sin. Why? Because there will be consequences. You guys remember Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5? Acting as if they gave all the proceeds of the sale of the property? What happens? They're dead. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but there are consequences to sin. And we walk around like it doesn't exist. Does God protect His own, by the way? Psalm 91, 2 through 5. I want to read it to you. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I trust Him. Him, for He will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with His feathers. He will shelter you with His wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night nor the arrows that fly in the day. You know, when we are in His presence, He will protect us from the lies of the enemy. He will protect us from the tricks of the enemy. He will protect us from the flaming arrows of the enemy. God protects His children in temptation, not from temptation. Temptations are coming. Matthew 6, 13, And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. He will protect us from temptation, not... He will protect us in temptation, not from temptation. He'll always give us a way out. He'll always give us the strength to resist and the power to overcome. I've heard, I've heard so many men say, I just can't whip this sin. 
I go, you're right. You absolutely can. But God can. In fact, God did. And he did it on the cross. You know, we li- Doug and I talk about this all the time. We live in a society now, even in the church, where we think confession's enough. Darn it, no. We need to turn from it. Turn from it. And sometimes it is praying, God, take this desire that I have. Take it away. God protects His children with His armor. I love this. Ephesians 6, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on, God's, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. His armor will protect us. His armor will shield us. His armor will prepare us for battle. But here's the deal, guys. We got to suit up. We got to suit up. We're just not suited up. We got to put it on. God values the heart of a child. He protects the heart of a child. And finally, He rescues the heart of a child by searching for the one that's lost. Is there a tendency for us to get lost sometimes? Man, we can get lost really quick. Jesus uses this parable to express a father's heart. Verse 12, look at it. What do you think? What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? Listen, who is the man in the parable here? Who is this guy? He's a shepherd. Shepherds were looked down upon in this culture. God loves shepherds. God's love is illustrated as a shepherd in search of his own sheep. It's personal. It's individual. It doesn't matter which sheep goes astray. The Lord is equally equally concerned for them all. Not only does the shepherd search for the one, it goes on to say in verse 13, And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. In other words, there is excitement over the sheep that's been found. Not because it's more valued, but because it's rescued from destruction. You ever see a brother in Christ that's just headed down the wrong way? Do we have compassion? Do we love them? Do we want to grab them and help them? Not just tell them what they're doing wrong. Put your arm around them and walk life with them. We don't do that well. I don't want to get close to that guy. He's got, he's got issues. Really? Like we don't. May we be reminded of the cross. Not only does he search for the one, but when he finds it, he is pumped. This demonstrates that God cares for us. His care for us is limitless. Look at the cross. God desires a heart that knows the security of a father's love. Oh, man, may we be reminded that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Is that our perception? Is that how we live life? That when we see our brother in Christ, we're not waiting for, his act, for him to get his act together before we'll wrap our arms around with him and walk life with him? And I don't know about you, but I do that. That guy just needs to get his life together. Then I'll be his buddy. <laughs> now, let's be his buddy while he's in the midst of his struggles. He further illustrates in verse 14, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these ones should perish. 
This love for the individual sheep is not at the expense of the entire flock, but so that the flock as a whole may not lose one single member. And I think, Doug, a lot of what you and I talk about on air and here is this camaraderie that we have as men. That if one brother is in sin, we ought to, as a group, get around that guy. How many of you have ever been in battle, in a real battle in the military? Is it normal for one guy to just be out in the middle of the field? And you get in there. You wrap him up. John 6, 39 says, And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those He has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see His Son and believe in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. He not only will protect us, but come after us if we go astray. He will not rest until He has found us. He will go even after the worst cases. Isn't that good news? Even the worst cases, He'll come after. 1 Timothy, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16, But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as prime example of His great patience with even the worst sinners. Remember how Paul described himself? I'm the worst. I'm the worst of sinners. He goes on to say, then others will realize that they too can believe in Him and receive eternal life. Paul had a perspective. He never forgot who he was. And may we do the same. Let's don't forget who we are. We can mask it in this real spiritual veneer. I teach, I do this, I serve, I, you know, all these little things that fill up our spiritual resume. But listen, we're all just as wretched as the guy down the street, right? Jesus is the good shepherd. He cares for his sheep. And when it comes to Jesus, he values the heart of his children. He protects the heart of his children. And he rescues the heart of his children. I'm going to get you to write down three things before I close. Question number one. Do you need to develop the heart of a child? Is pride an area that the Lord needs to work on in your life? Doug knows me well enough. If I write a question like that, it's really for me. (laughs) Is pride an area that the Lord needs to work on in your life? Question number two. Do you need his protection from temptation? Thirdly, do you know someone in need of being rescued? I think as I worked through this lesson last night and this morning, that that is what really kind of stood out for me. You know, we talk about SWAT, we talk about battle buddies, we talk about all this stuff. But, you know, the, the idea of being in a battle is this idea that it's tough out there. 
We live in a very, very dark world. We're being tempted every single day by multiple places. And if we're battle buddies, we're not in the field alone. Even the guy who's taking some, <laughs> taking some shots, boy, he needs us. He needs us to step in. And uh, it made me think of a couple of guys in particular that I have kind of, I hate to say it, avoided a little bit because they've kind of gone astray. They've kind of started doing some things that I don't agree with. And instead of running after them, I've kind of sat back on my lazy boy and judged them. I hope if I get that direction, I got some brothers around me who will run after me. All right, you want to close us? Yeah. Um, one thing, like Brad said at the beginning, don't miss the context. This is a rebuke for the disciples. And the rebuke was uh, when he says a heart that models a childlike faith or trust, he's talking to people that he's leaving the ministry with. you got to remember, he's getting ready to leave. And what he's telling them is, that when you think of a child, what's one of the, 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 the characteristic that pops into your head most? When you think about a child. Huh? Dependent, what else? Innocent. They're not innocent. We think they're innocent. But... Depends what a child. I've had too many. I know they're not innocent. Okay? They, they can be molded. Here, they, the, the biggest one that popped into my head is a child in any culture has no authority. None. They're the lowest part of a pecking order. And what Jesus is saying to those disciples is, you have no authority. You've got to be like that. He's the authority. That's why he says, don't call anyone teacher. Who's the teacher? He's the teacher. See, when pastors and leaders start thinking they're teachers, that's when they fall and they mislead. They don't get the seriousness of sin that he was talking about. They become prideful. So, so the whole thing about all this, what Brad just shared, everything about the valuing the heart of a child, the protecting the heart of the child, and, and, and rescuing the heart of a child, that is a great responsibility for leaders, which we're all leaders in some way, shape, or form. And, it, and, and Jesus was rebuking them. And he's saying, this is serious business. It's very serious. You can't take it lightly. So as you go out, think about his questions. And the heart that rests in the Father's love is a secure heart. That means you don't have to prove anything to anybody about how great you are. If somebody's telling you how great they are, they're probably not very great. I don't care who it is. I don't care if his name is Trump. He wouldn't be squat without God. I can tell you that right now. God put him there. He didn't get there on his own. He thinks he got there on his own. He's learning that lesson, though. I'm just telling you. If somebody's telling you they're great, they don't have an understanding of where the greatness comes from. You don't have to tell anybody you're great. Just go out and show a dependence on him. That's what he wants. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for Brad and the message. Uh, just speaking through him. And uh, as we go out, May we really examine our own pride issues, our own lack of uh, really looking at sin, any sin, especially the internal sins is serious.
may we go out. May we go out and may we be your warriors. Because like Brad said, there are men who are wasting away out there. And Lord, you have brought us into their lives and our paths together for us to be your light. Let us be a light to the world. Give us your power. Give us your strength. May we depend on you. And may we be your servants in Christ's name. Amen.